Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part six in our series entitled The Problem of Evil. It might be helpful to go back and listen to the previous episodes if you've just started tuning into this podcast. Uh, Each episode builds on concepts from previous episodes as we're going throughout church history. So, you know, that would only make some sense that the work of Augustine, for example, in part five, you'd need to know some stuff about Origen from part four and Plotinus, the Neoplatonic philosopher. And in today's episode, as we get into Thomas Aquinas, you're probably going to need to know some stuff about Augustine covered in part four, part five, I should say, of this series. So if you want to, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to previous episodes. If not, and you're feeling adventurous, jump right on in to part six of The Problem of Evil. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Shema Apparel. I introduced you to Shema Apparel in the previous episode as a company that's actually doing something about evil and suffering in the world. They're an ethical fashion brand for men and women where the garments and clothing are produced by survivors of human trafficking and they're paid a living wage. They work in a dignified working conditions and that alone might make you want to give them your business. But on top of that, the clothing is incredibly comfortable, perfect for city wear, travel wear. It's the most comfortable shirt I've ever worn made from organic fibers like organic bamboo. Yes organic bamboo on your body. It's a great feeling. So check them out at shamaapparel.com. You'll find a link to Shema Apparel in the description of this podcast. Over three centuries after the fall of Rome, Charlemagne, otherwise known as Charles the Great, rose to power, uniting most of Western and Central Europe, becoming the first emperor of most of Europe since the Romans. During that period, there was a a bit of a renaissance of classical learning, including, including a strong emphasis on the centrality of Christian theology as the queen of sciences. Relative to the rest of the Middle Ages, it was a pretty peaceful era in in Western Europe. But when Charlemagne died in the year 814, Europe began a slow descent into chaos and violence as kings and popes alike fought to fill in the vacuum of power. By the 12th and 13th century, nearly all of Europe was part of what we might call, quote, Christendom, which is this sort of odd hybrid of a a general Christian narrative framework with institutionalized hierarchical government power. The High Middle Ages were an interesting time for Christian theology, especially as it relates to the problem of evil. If you were to look at art and read folklore from that time period, you'd find it's filled with images of the devil and demons tormenting, tempting, and spreading wickedness in the world. To the average person living in Europe in this era, there wasn't any question as to where evil came from. It came from the devil and his demons. But this wasn't the same sort of theodicy we saw from the early church fathers or New Testament authors who assigned primary blame on evil to Satan. This was a time of immense spiritual superstition. 
Everything from troubles in your love life to the very existence of Muslims and Jews could be blamed on demonic activity. Yikes. When the Black Plague broke out in Europe, killing anywhere between one-third to 60% of the entire population, people thought it was the, quote, demonic Jews who, who were to blame. God was judging Christians for allowing their very presence to exist in their cities and their communities. Mass persecution and forcible removal of Jewish people from these cities began. Jews were even forced by decree from the Pope to wear a yellow star and to live in ghettos walled off from the rest of the world. Sound familiar? This bad theology and superstitious spirituality was a major, major problem. According to one doctor, referring to the plague, quote, instantaneous death occurs when the aerial spirit escaping from the eyes of the sick man strikes the healthy person standing near and looking at the sick. It was also though, during this period of the 12th to 14th century, that we saw the crusades against Muslims and heretics launched by Pope Innocent I back by the promise in the Fourth Lateran Council of forgiveness of sins and salvation for those who go to fight in the Holy Land against Muslims or, or for those who even physically fight heretics here at home. Later, Pope Gregory IX created a, a formal process for what he thought would get rid of evil and heresy. That process was called the Inquisition. And it wasn't without theological precedent, as even Augustine, who we talked about in the previous episode, in his later years, supported violent, forced conversions. I mean, after all, if God will use terrible, horrific, violent judgments on sinners, and we call that good, because it is, for Augustinian theology, a possible means to redirect the sinner away from vice and back towards the good, then why shouldn't his people do that? Especially when the hierarchical institutions of authority claim to be representatives of God on earth. And guys, this is why I am so passionate about theology as someone with a history undergrad and you know do graduate studies in theology and philosophy bad theology literally kills people <laughs> and before you go and say well maybe we should just abandon theology altogether as we've talked about before no 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 you can't do that because everyone has a theology even the secular atheists but theology, the narrative that we, begin, we believe about God and reality and how the world works and what God is like, what ultimate reality is like, shapes our own ethics. It shapes the way that we believe we're supposed to live in the world. And so bad theology can be devastating. Holocausts, Inquisitions, Crusades, it's terrible, right? And this is why this is why we want to always be constantly checking our own theological blind spots by hearing from other people's perspectives, by learning and growing, by comparing what we believe with 
the historic witness of the apostles in the New Testament, by going through church history even. All of these things help us. Now, this era in history doesn't completely deserve the term Dark Ages, despite all of what I've just told you. Oddly enough, as we could see running parallel with this period of time in which there's immense superstition and violence and evil conducted by supposed Christians, there's also incredible works of art. You know, those beautiful cathedrals and the the Gothic architecture from this time period. And, And we also have this incredible flourishing of knowledge in universities like Oxford and Paris. It was in universities like these where a new openness developed in Europe to non-biblical sources of wisdom and knowledge, and these were actually celebrated as part of the theological endeavor. Not only do we have the revelation of God as a guide, but we also have God's gift of reason to enlighten our path to Him and the way His world works. School of thought and methodology became known as scholasticism, And it was during this era that perhaps the greatest scholastic theologian who ever lived attempted to give a theology for everything, including the problem of evil. Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican friar who lived from 1225 to 1274 AD Aquinas is considered to be one of the most influential philosophers and theologians in all of history, especially in the Western world. Aquinas wrote one of the most ambitious works of theology in all of history. It was a theology of everything, or Summa Theologica. He never finished that book, actually. Just months before he died at the age of 49, Aquinas claimed to have had sort of a mystical revelation in a ecstatic spiritual experience that that left an indelible imprint on him. Quote, Everything I have ever written seems like straw by comparison with what I have seen and what has been revealed to me. End quote. And again, it's not like for Aquinas that he thought everything he had ever written he no longer believed anymore, but this this strange, mystical, spiritual experience left him feeling as if it was all rubbish in comparison. While secular atheism has never quite existed in the past, like it has in the 20th 20th and 21st century, there's always been questions about how can one prove the existence of God, especially in light of the challenges of the problem of evil. At its core, the problem of evil presents a challenge to the Christian notion of a God who is both all-good and all-powerful. So Aquinas felt it important to give a basic philosophical defense for the existence of God, to demonstrate that God was provable. To demonstrate the existence of God as being a logical necessity— Aquinas came up with what we call today his five ways that you can prove God exists. Those five ways can be simply called motion, cause, contingency, 
perfection and design or order. Whether you're familiar with Aquinas' five ways or not, I think it'd be helpful to go through and to kind of give a, a summary explanation of each one of these arguments that Aquinas makes for the existence of God. Let's start with the first one, the one we might call the argument from motion. And this one is going to seem weird at first. I, I remember when I first discovered this going, what, you're going to prove that God exists or make an argument that God exists based on movement or motion. But in short, here is Aquinas' argument from movement or motion. We all have senses and senses that attest to the existence of movement or motion in our lives, but every motion presupposes a mover which produces that movement. So if our senses can prove that some things are in motion, things move when potential motion becomes actual motion. Well, what can give that actual, make that potentiality and actuality? Well, it's a previous actuality. There's a previous movement, a previous mover that brings about the subsequent movement. Nothing can all at once be both actuality and potentiality. Therefore, nothing can move itself. If each thing in motion is moved by something else, the sequence of movement, of cause and effect, of what caused this movement, can't go forever. There has to be, and necessarily, a first mover, an unmoved mover that puts motion into place. This unmoved mover, this we can't get any further back than this, this bedrock of motion, this pure actuality by which all other potential movements come from is God. For Aquinas, it is a logical necessity from motion that God exists. The second argument that Aquinas gives to defend the existence of God is what, again, we call the argument from cause or efficient causes. And the argument goes like this. Something new comes to be in the world. Let's say you make a piece of art. Let's say you draw a picture, you make a painting, you do a sculpture. That sculpture, that piece of art has a prior cause. You are the prior cause in that particular case. But it's not just you. You might have your paintbrush. You might have your sculpting tools. If it's a work of music, you might have your guitar or a piano. That's also a prior cause. But that instrument, that tool that you used in and of itself has a prior cause. It's a cause that brought that thing into being. Everything has a prior cause. If we were to trace those causes back before what caused this, what caused this, what caused this, eventually we have to get to a point where there is the logical necessity of a first cause, an uncaused causer. <laughs> it might sound, uh, you know, you, your mind might be, brain might be hurting at this point, but it's, it, it's really important that you understand these arguments from Aquinas. Again, you've got a series of causes in the world, but nothing exists prior to itself. Nothing in the world is the efficient cause of itself. If a previous efficient cause doesn't exist, Neither does that thing, the effect. We do not have the effect without the previous cause. 
So if we were to keep going back, every effect has a cause, and every cause produces an effect. We have to get to the point where there is a first efficient cause, a cause by which all other effects come from, and this first efficient cause, the uncaused causer, is God. Now, for many people who hear this third argument from Aquinas, they get it confused with the second argument, and there are actually two different arguments. Though they're related, they, they are different arguments. The third argument for the existence of God is the argument from contingency. This third way for Aquinas goes something like this. Everything in reality is contingent. Everything in the created world is a contingent being. It's contingent. Its existence is contingent on something else. And this, again, shouldn't be confused with just a previous cause. No, I am contingent on the atmosphere of the earth in order to exist. The earth is contingent on its particular place in the solar system and the sun. The sun is contingent. Its existence is contingent on, if we were to keep going, it's contingent on the existence of the universe, right? So what, does the universe have any um, contingency or is the universe necessary? By, by which we mean, and we've talked about this before, necessary would be that it is fundamental, there, you know, it's not contingent on any other thing. This, again, doesn't just mean a, a previous cause. Again, I'm sitting in a chair, and in a certain sense, my ability to sit upright right now as I'm speaking into this microphone is contingent on this chair existing. That is how I am able to sit, right? It's not just a previous cause. It's actually holding me in this this present state. If we were to peel the onion back, we've talked about this one going all the way back to when we talked about the six meaning-making questions. We keep peeling the onion of reality back. Am I necessary for the existence of everything? Well, I'd have to say no. If I never existed, I have to believe. It's logical for me to believe that if I never existed, though I wouldn't know any different, the world would still exist. You may still exist. You wouldn't be listening to this, right? We're getting trippy. But if, let's say, my family never existed, were there other, still be humans? Yes, more than likely, right? Um, you know, even if there were no humans on the planet, would the Earth still exist? Yes. So the Earth's existence is not contingent on our existence. It's contingent on some other existence like the sun and the sun, the universe and the universe. What? Right. So the argument from contingency, from possibility and necessity argues that there could have been a time when no things existed. But at that time, there would have been nothing to bring the currently existing contingent beings into existence. If that was the case, then therefore, nothing would be in existence now. And this is absurd because we know that things are existent now. So if things are existent now, but they themselves are contingent, there has to be some necessary foundational reality. There has to be a necessity 
a bedrock necessity by which all contingency derives their existence from. This which is that which is necessary is God. Are you tracking with me so far? I hope so. I know these are these are you might need to slow down and go back if you've never been exposed to these five arguments from Aquinas. You might want to go back and re-listen to them again. We could probably take entire episodes on each one, but that's really not the purpose of this this podcast. We're, we're staying within the vein of the problem of evil. And this is going to be important because the challenges that the problem of evil presents to the existence of God, these arguments from Aquinas are historically really important arguments that, even in the face of evil, continue to give some sort of rational grounds for why God is necessary, all right? So the fourth way, the fourth argument is the one that we've called the uh, the argument from perfection. You might also call it the argument from gradation of being. And and this one, boy, if you thought the other ones were con- maybe confusing, <laughs> you know, this one might confuse you some more. Maybe Maybe it won't, but the argument goes like this. Essentially, true things good things, beautiful things. These are what we call the transcendentals, the true, the good, the beautiful. True things, good things, beautiful things exist to greater or lesser degree. Some things are better or worse than other things. Some things are more true. Some things are more beautiful. Some things are more good than others. What is their source? What is the maximum good, the maximum true, the maximum beautiful that one could conceive of, what may we even say transcends all of our conceptions of goodness, truth, and beauty, and where does truth, goodness, and beauty come from? If there are degrees of goodness and truth and beauty, if there are degrees by which we can say something is better or worse, it's more beautiful or less beautiful, if we can say something is true or false, there is a maximum goodness, a maximum beauty, a maximum truth that exists, which is the ground of all truth, goodness, and beauty. And that, that that theoretical limit, the ceiling of truth, goodness, and beauty, the source of it is God. There must be something that causes the being, the very being of goodness and beauty to exist, of truth to exist, and every other perfection. There is necessarily a need for perfection. Or we could put it like this, Something beautiful participates in the beautiful. Something good participates in varying degrees with the good, capital G. Something true participates in varying degrees with the true, capital T. For Aquinas, this necessary perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty is God. The fifth argument from Aquinas is the one we call, we can call the argument from order, the argument from design, or some might just say using the Greek word, the the teleological, the argument from telos. For Aquinas, the functioning of the natural world, the stars and the planets of natural bodies, the 
the science that they understood in their day pointed to an intelligent source, a, a goal by which the natural bodies are working towards, even those things which do not possess in and of themselves in what we might call knowledge or, or rationality like humans and angels do for Aquinas. The, the things in the cosmos that seem to function without rationality are like an arrow that is flying through the sky heading towards a particular target. That arrow is traveling in a direction because an archer has used his bow to project that arrow towards its target. Human history and creation appears to be heading in a particular direction, towards a, towards a particular goal. There seems to be intelligence, a telos, an end goal in mind. And if there is an end goal in mind, then there necessarily needs to be an ultimate setter of goals. The ultimate goal, <laughs> the ultimate goal setter, maybe he writes them down and puts them on his refrigerator. There is one who sets the direction and design by which the universe functions. He sets the goal by which it's heading towards. If we can use our reason and rationality to deduce the movements of the planets and the stars, if we can use it to do science, especially in what we might consider the limited sense in which the world of Aquinas lived in did science, if we can use our rational minds to deduce that there is uh, laws of the universe, there's design that causes us or gives us the ability to predict certain things like predict the weather and the movements of the stars, if that is the case, there must be some ultimate designer. There must be some ultimate intender. There must be some sort of ultimate rationality of the universe, an ultimate reasoner, a reasoning mind behind the movement of matter. For Aquinas, this being is what we call God, the ultimate mind, the ultimate rationality and reason of the universe. Having established that evil is not a challenge to the existence of God, and that God is logically necessary for anything to exist at all, Aquinas turns his attention to addressing the problem of evil in more particularity. Aquinas continued the tradition of the church established by people like Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and most famously Augustine by teaching that evil was a privation of the good. As was the case with most of Augustine's theology, this had become the universal default answer in Christian theology in the West. But Aquinas is no carbon copy of Augustine's theology and his theodicy. While Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Augustine were influenced by Platonic thought, a revived interest in Aristotle during this period helped shape what we now call Thomistic theology, based on the name Thomas, Thomas Aquinas, Thomistic. In Platonic philosophy, the material world was a shadow or uh, an imperfect manifestation of the spiritual or immaterial forms that exist above and beyond our material plane. This in philosophy is called idealism, and this idealism took on many different interpretations, including, if we go back a few previous episodes, 
including a more Gnostic interpretation, especially as it relates to the Christian story. The reason why idealism could easily take the form of Gnosticism was that idealism holds that the material world is always a defective picture of the ideal spiritual world. We could also say that Augustine was an idealist in his interpretation of the Bible and theology, hence the contrast between the city of God and the city of man. One of Augustine's most famous works, the city of God, and the most famous metaphors or pictures that he has. In Aristilian philosophy, that again would be philosophy from Aristotle, experiential existence, what we actually experience in the material world, is more important than immaterial essence. This is the major rift between the school of thought from Plato and Aristotle. Aquinas follows Aristotle, or what we call Aristotle's realism, which is a belief that reality is actually the observable material world. It's not just a shadow. This is a really, really, really important thing for us to get, just not even in just understanding the difference between Aquinas and Augustine, but to understand larger theological implications that this philosophy has on the rest of Christian doctrine. You see, the Platonic school of thought, while on one ditch you could jump all the way into the the Gnostic and the Manichaean interpretations of Platonic philosophy as it relates to the Christian story, there was the ditch on that side. You also had this problem of what do you do with this material world, right? Remember, we go back to origin, and origin thought that uh, one way to make the Christian story fit this Platonic framework. And again, you know, this can be really hard for us to wrap our minds around in the era that we live in. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, and even in the early medieval, now we're in the late medieval with Aquinas, like philosophy is science, okay? Uh, It's not just, well, you know, they're picking one school of thought versus the other. These were like competing sciences. Philosophy was science. So it would be like, you know, you know, the debate you might have with somebody else where you go and they're like a flat earther, right? And you go, well, that's just, that's, that's not a, that's not a reasonable way of interpreting the world, right? You know, so I have to make my understanding of the Bible fit the science of my day. The science of my day is that the earth is round. It's a sphere and it's, not a geocentric universe. It's a heliocentric universe. These are all things that we just assume. They run in the background of our operating systems and our our meaning-making systems. So you have to understand, for ancient people and even into this medieval period, philosophy is science, right? So for someone like Origen and the Platonic philosophy is the science, Origen figured out or came up with this theory of two creations to help sort of try to reconcile how could we affirm what the biblical story affirms that creation is good and yet also affirm that it's fallen and broken. Origen came up with the two creation theory, right? The first creation was the creation of rational minds, spiritual entities, spiritual beings, the immaterial, you know, the immaterial forms of platonic idealism. 
And the second act of creation was the material world, right? So the material world is somewhat defective, but it's defective in that it's a it's a degree, it's degrees away from the good, but God has good intentions for it, right? Remember what those were for origin? They were that the material world would be a school or a hospital for rational souls. So that was kind of his way of of making that fit. And it, it's, again, like we talked about last time, it's so strange to us, but that was like the philosophy, the Platonic philosophy was the science for origin. And it's the same thing for Augustine. One critique of Augustine might be that, uh, and this was brought up again by Bishop Julian of Aclanum when he got later into Augustine's life, was that Augustine, uh, the, the, the charge against Augustine that was that he was actually reverting back to his Manichaeanism, his Manichaeism. He was reverting back to a, a picture of the world in which creation is so broken, so fallen, people in their very nature are so sinful and so broken that the charge against him was that you know, you're getting too close here to this sort of Gnostic boundary where the, the, again, the interpretation of Platonic philosophy, which was the science, was that the material form has to be defective because the immaterial, the spiritual is, is, is the real thing, right? And the material is a shadow. And the danger for Augustine's theology, right, was that in, if, in just keeping the Platonic worldview, the danger for Augustine was that he would actually distort the biblical narrative too much, and now he would put potentially too much of an emphasis on the fall. And he'd have to do this in order to potentially fit the Platonic Platonic framework. Aquinas and this change for Aquinas in moving more towards Aristotelian or Aristotle's philosophy of realism marks a substantial change in how one would interpret the biblical narrative through this philosophical lens. If the material world isn't just a shadow of immaterial forms, if the world of our sensory experiences is actually real, then for Aquinas, this left room for a greater possibility of us affirming the goodness of creation. What we might call the natural world today or the material world is not defective inherently. It's not it's not lower in the creation hierarchy than the spiritual domain. And it's not like Aquinas just denies the existence of spirit. No, he, he certainly doesn't. And Aquinas actually even makes an adjustment to Aristotle's realism. Because the danger for Aristotle's realism, the ditch for Aristotelian philosophy, was that it could easily lead to materialism or naturalism or, or physicalism. Because if this material world is in fact the real world, then maybe there is no domain of spirit. If our senses are actually giving us, and reason are actually giving us an accurate picture of reality as we experience it, then maybe there is no room for spirit at all. What point or purpose does any immaterial form have if the material world is the real world? So Aquinas sensed that there was a danger in wholesale adoption of Aristotle's realism. So he made a tweak to it. And this is 
In the history of philosophy and theology, this is such a huge, important contribution. For Aquinas, things actually do exist in the mind in an immaterial form experienced as intellectual knowledge, but they also exist in the material world and are deduced through sensory experience. It's not that there is a spiritual form of a basketball that our pre-existent souls recognize when we see various imperfect basketballs of different sizes and colors. No, that was the platonic idealism, that there is an idealized spiritual basketball that our, again, pre-existent souls recognize in its shadowy material form of its various imperfect, you know, imperfections of different sizes and colors. No, the, the mind develops a universal picture of what a basketball is based on its sensory experience. This may seem like a major philosophical detour on the problem of evil, but it isn't because for Aquinas, it is this philosophical framework that allows him to believe that creation is actually good and that it isn't just a flawed shadow. Aquinas doesn't have to do what Origen did and speculate about two acts of creation and come up with a way to make the lesser material world not as evil as the Gnostics made it out to be. No, what our senses experience is real. And God made the world good and discernible. It's because God made the material world good and has given us the ability to discern with our senses and reason the effects of his works in the material world, that we, according to Aquinas, should have a very high view of reason. This is the best the universe could be for Aquinas. Again, echoing earlier Christian thought, if God were to create a perfect world without the potentiality for evil, there'd be no difference between God and what God created. And God can't create God. That's a, a logical contradiction, right? For Aquinas, it's like God can't do anything. God can't do what is logically contradictory, like God cannot create himself. If that's the case, then you have to throw out his five arguments, just throw those out the window. The necessary, um, you know, that the, the God is that which is necessary. So if God created God, then one other, you know, the other God would be contingent and by default not be God. So if you're going to have a God who creates, what God created has to f just by necessity not be perfect. What God has to create has to be a degree away from his perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty. God cannot create God. Now, given the world that God created for Aquinas, given that it has to be different from God, suffering is a logical necessity of having a creation that's different from its creator. To quote Brian Davies on Aquinas, quote, God cannot make lions and lambs without the lambs having something to worry about, end quote. And this leads us to Aquinas' differentiation between two kinds of evil in creation. For Aquinas, there's a difference, an important distinction to be made between evil suffered 
and evil done, between natural evil and moral evil. A lion eating a lamb, a natural, quote-unquote, natural disaster like an earthquake or a hurricane, someone catching a virus. This is evil suffered, and it's just for Aquinas, it's just a contingency of creation. This is just what happens when you have a necessary distinction between creation, which is imperfect, and God, which is perfect. God doesn't necessarily will this sort of evil. God doesn't necessarily will as a secondary cause a hurricane, a typhoon, a lion eating a lamb, uh, someone catching a cold or a flu virus. God wills the ultimate good of the whole creation, even if some parts suffer. In some instances, this is evil that's just simply a necessary part of the existence of the whole, which is, again, on the whole, more good than evil. Aquinas says that you can't remove all suffering. You can't remove it all. Because to remove all suffering would actually remove all beauty. And much beauty, quote, arises from an ordered unification of good and evil, end quote. Now, this isn't the only kind of evil. The evil suffered. And it's fine for us to call these things evil, even though on the surface it might seem like, based on Aquinas' explanation, he might be saying, well, those things aren't evil. No, they are evil. The, lo- the lamb experiences being eaten by the lion as evil. You experience the, the effects of catching a virus as evil, a natural disaster. We experience that. But as long as we keep in mind that these evils are not a challenge on the whole to the goodness of creation, they may be necessary. And it's actually all right to resist those things as long as we recognize that it's just part of the universe. There's beauty that emerges out of these experiences of evil, and we can't remove them all without eliminating creation, logically. And there, so God and his wisdom and providence allows for a sort of, again, to quote, quote Aquinas, an ordered unification of good and evil. This isn't the only sort of evil, though, Aquinas focuses on. The second one is actually where Aquinas devotes much more attention to, and we could call it evil done or moral evils. Evil done is the, are the moral evils rational beings choose to do to themselves and others. This sort of evil, these evils done or moral evils, are the result of doing what is against reason or what we might call natural law and going against revelation or divine law. Evil happens when our wills are drawn to what we think is a good, but neglect to see how it's linked to evil or suffering. It's when we experience an attraction to something that we think is a good, but we don't run it through the process God has given us of our reasoning capabilities, and we don't run it by his revealed law in Scripture. For example, let's think of a, you know, just do a thought experiment here or a practical example. Imagine someone who's married and is considering cheating on their spouse, right? Something that I hope we would all agree is a a no-no, right? We would say as Christians especially, we'd say, nope, that's 
That's not something you, you should do. That's a sin. That's evil. So the person who is in a married relationship, they're in a married, marital covenant, and they're considering cheating on their spouse, what are they drawn to? All right, well, as we think through this, they're, they're probably drawn to what they actually perceive at first is good. They might be drawn to pleasure, which is good in and of itself, right? Pleasure is not automatically evil. They might be drawn to companionship. They might be drawn to the affirmation of another person. These are things that they perceive on the surface to be good, but, but that person who is perceiving these as good have to check their desires against reason, and they have to check their desires against divine law. They have to ask questions like, what suffering may this cause? Or have I actually committed myself to another person? What will giving into this lust do to my soul? And this ability to use rational thought, to use reason, is not just a, a tool at the disposal of Christians alone. No, this is a universal gift. It's a gift of what we might say in more Protestant terminology, a gift of common grace. It's, it's part of God's gift of general revelation to all rational minds. You don't have to be a Christian. You can be a Jew, a Muslim. You can be non-religious. And if you have a mind and you possess the capabilities of reasoning and rationality, then you are able to actually discern in part God's will. You are able to discern God's natural law that we have access to via reason. So all people have this, and all people are then responsible for how they use their reasoning capabilities to act in the world. And so when you experience an attraction to something, a desire for something that you think is a, is a good Aquinas encourages you, use your reasoning abilities, right? Use your reasoning abilities. And this becomes really the foundation for, for Western law as we get past the Enlightenment into, you know, the, the, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. When we go through even the, uh, the revolution that happens in the American notions of government, the ideas of separation of church and state. Right. What is the separation of church and state based upon in a functioning society? Well, it's based on this idea that, you know, you actually, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church on Sunday morning to be a moral person. God has actually given you reasoning ability, which allows you to rationally think through, is this a good or will this actually cause evil and suffering? Is it a false good? Is it a deception? Right? That's a little bit of a historical detour. But it's a, this is a really, really important point. So in this way, the person who acts towards what they perceive to be a good, but isn't actually a good in keeping with reason or revelation, will inflict harm and suffering on others and themselves. We might call this experience of suffering as a result of not following reason or God's revelation in scriptures, we might call that experience a natural consequence, right? So we can say that certain things are natural consequences, that, that God has designed the universe to, to work and function in a way where he is the primary cause, right? 
He is the ground of being. He is that which is necessary. So yes, in a sense, God is the cause of all things, even those things that we might experience as suffering. But that's very, very different in Thomistic theology than saying that God is the secondary cause. He is the he is the the cause that's actually pressing the button, the suffering button. He's the one throwing the lightning bolt your way in some sort of personal sense. No, there are some experiences of suffering where a person acts in a way that's not in keeping with reason that brings about what we might call a natural consequence. If I go speeding down a highway, which is, you know, maybe only designed to be able to um, safely, uh, I can safely drive a car at 45 miles an hour, and I decide to go 180 miles an hour, it's could create and more than likely will create a natural consequence of harm and suffering for myself, some other person, possibly multiple people. Why is that? Well, it's because I did not act in accordance with reason, even though there might not be a specific specific Bible verse about speeding, about going 70 miles an hour past the speed limit. There might not be a Bible verse for that particular thing. God has given me the faculties of reasons to deduce this is actually not a good. It might feel like a good, like speeding, going fast. That might be an appeal, right? It might be a sense of pleasure, but it's not a good because it can create a consequence of serious harm and devastation. So in that way, we might experience suffering from natural consequences of our decisions, But for Aquinas, that's not the only sort of suffering that we might experience as a result of moral evils. Aquinas also believes that as a result of our evil done, as the result of our moral evils, that God as an effective, not just primary cause, but secondary cause might bring about just punishment that is designed to uh, deter us from continuing in that evil. So it's not that just we, you know, and this is one of the problems that emerges later in the Enlightenment with um, perhaps maybe even some consequences of Thomistic theology when we get into deism is like, okay, well, if we have a primary cause, if we have a prime mover, and this prime mover is infinitely intelligent, omniscient, and perfect, then why would he ever need to, in a sense, step into the story in any way? Can't he just set it up and leave it? And we'll, we'll explore the question about that later. But just to, be, just to make sure here, Aquinas is not a deist. Aquinas isn't a deist. He affirms that, in a sense, we could say God not only is the ground of being, but he's actually active in the story. And he may bring about like, not just as a natural consequence, he may bring about a just punishment to deter us from continuing in that evil. Though there certainly are logical arguments from people as to why Aquinas' God of the five ways, the, the God of his five arguments, logically necessitates there being all acts in creation being foreordained or predetermined or predestined. In general, Aquinas does not believe that God interferes with human moral choices. 
He doesn't necessarily believe, though the framework might be in place for determinism, and there certainly is a, a great um, philosophical critique of Aquinas' theology, right? This, this actually ends up coming out later in, in deism. There's a, a critique that, you know, this sort of framework, this philosophical framework requires a deterministic universe. In general, though, Aquinas' attitude towards human moral choices is not that people are fated to their choices. He doesn't believe that God as a secondary cause in general doesn't really interfere with our choosing. And he actually calls people to pursue a life of virtue, to pursue the highest good. What is the highest good that a person can choose? It's selfless love. This selfless love, or what Aquinas calls caritas, is a manifestation of the love of God brought about by the indwelling spirit of God. Caritas is the highest virtue a person can pursue. This is the highest good that can be made manifest in someone's life. It is selfless love, and it's expressed in the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus. For Aquinas, it's pride that keeps us from pursuing the highest good. It's pride that keeps us from pursuing caritas. Pride is the antithesis of selfless love. It's the, the elevation of the self over the other. And this is, for Aquinas, what caused the fall of Satan. Aquinas believed that Satan fell almost instantaneously after creation. It was his pride and his envy of God which caused him to rebel and to lead other angels to follow him on his demonic path. Wanting to be the author of his own salvation, he refused the gift of grace offered by God. And Aquinas rejects what Origen had hoped, the, the Originian hope that even maybe one day Satan would even return and be redeemed. Aquinas responded to that idea by saying that the demonic will remain, quote, obstinate in evil, end quote, forever. While most philosophical and theological reflection on Aquinas neglects to bring up what Aquinas believed about demons and Satan and their role in the world, closer examination shows that Aquinas did hold to many superstitious beliefs about demons, including the medieval myths of things like incubi and succubi that were male demons and female demons that would sexually prey on people in their sleep. I know, really weird stuff. Any fans of the 90s band Incubus? Was that just, was that just me? Well, I didn't know what their name meant at the time. So we do see some, you know, some superstitious thought. But, but what's, what's more important to understand about Aquinas' belief on angels and demons is, is that it's in keeping, actually, with what he believed about how God interacted with human wills. Satan and demons and his demons cannot actually change our wills. We remain free to choose. We always have free choice. Demonic beings can tempt, they can uh, try to persuade, they can bring about the deceptions that we believe might be an actual good, but in reality are not actually good, but they can't actually change our wills. We are responsible for our 
own failures in this world. We're responsible for our own ex- uh, creation of evil and suffering by willing away from the good, by rejecting the path of selfless love in favor of the path of self-elevation at the cost of others. Life was hard in this medieval world. It was, as later philosopher Thomas Hobbes would say, nasty, brutish, and short. Plagues, famines, war, threats of war. Life expectancy might only get you 40 or 50 years, even for Aquinas himself. He only lived to be 49 and died of what might have likely been a head injury that wasn't properly treated. It was Aquinas' synthesis of Aristotle's realism with Christian theology that paved the way for a higher view of reason. It paved the way for the modern scientific era and improvements in medicine, which would radically improve the quality of people's life and minimize their experiences of suffering. While on his deathbed in 1274, Aquinas' final words were this, quote, I receive thee, ransom of my soul. For love of thee, I have studied and kept vigil, toiled, preached, and taught. End quote. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd love to hear from you guys as you're going through this series. Which theologians, which voices from the past have brought helpful insights or even helped you process through some questions you had about evil and suffering and God's goodness and even going through today the five ways or the five arguments from Aquinas. I, I'd, I'd love to hear if those, if you hadn't heard of those before, hadn't gone through those before, if they made a particular impact on you, or those of you that were familiar with them, uh, what, what you think about them, are there holes in Aquinas's thought process? You can reach out to me on Twitter. I always leave a, just, um, a link to my, um, where you can find me on Twitter. It's just at Paul Hanleitner. And I want to thank the Deep Talks Patreon community. I want to thank those of you who are uh, giving to support the creation of this podcast for those of you that are participating in sharing this work with other people thank you for your support i want to thank this month's theology 201 level supporters paul r and luke h thank you guys for your support i'm just so appreciative of your generosity if you want to get involved if you feel like supporting this work that i'm doing and the the time invested the money spent on file hosting this podcast and picking up books and other resources to do this and you want to help support this you can become a, a member of the detox patreon community too you'll find a link to that in this podcast description there's also bonus content there we do special q a episodes giveaway charts and graphs and you know extra blogs and stuff like that all over there so you can check that out as well I also want to invite you, if you are enjoying this podcast, you're learning stuff from it, you think it's valuable enough to share with other people, to to share it with friends, but also just to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's still the number one way and the number one format people are getting their podcasts from. And reviews uh, over there certainly help other people discover this and to, to know what they're looking for as they are searching through the vast podcast expanse to try to maybe find something that is helping them with their questions about God and theology and philosophy. 
So thank you to those of you that have taken the time to do that and uh, encourage those of you that are enjoying this to, to, to leave a review and help others find this podcast as well. Well, gang, that concludes today's episode. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.